Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is the science of motherhood. Hello and welcome to the science of motherhood. I am your host, Dr. Nane White, and this is episode 110. Oh my goodness. It is flying, isn't it? Guacamole. (laughs) In today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about something which kind of was spawned off a a weekly newsletter that um, I do to all of our Fill Your Cup village members, which if that's something that you would love to get on top of, pop over to our website, ifillyourcup.com. And then if you just go to the FYC village tab, it'll have a thing saying join the FYC village. It's completely free. It is a essentially a no-nonsense, no-spam weekly newsletter and it's talking to you about what's happening in my life, if I've learned about a little tidbit of research or my favourite recipe, you know, whatever that looks like in that week. It's a little share. And last year I was talking about the fact that the Australian government um, announced that Um, the public will benefit from 34 new expanded or increased Medicare rebates for genetic testing to diagnose, prevent and treat a range of conditions and that, you know, approximately $150 million has been invested over four years to kind of strengthen that Medicare position on genetic testing. And so, you know, when I announced that, I actually had quite a number of people contact me about it and, you know, wanting more information, but then also like praising the fact that, you know, people will have access to this. And I think the thing that the takeaway message from all of it was that, you know, through Medicare, each parent will receive a rebate between $300 and $340 for the test, depending on whether they're treated in and out of hospital. But Prior to this, you know, you kind of had to jump through a few hoops and like tick boxes and and things like that in order to access these tests. But unlike most other genetic tests funded by Medicare, which require patients to satisfy certain clinical or family history criteria, these new rebates will be available to everyone, even those who have no symptoms, no family history or anything like that. And this is something that I spoke about in the newsletter about the fact that I grew up with a family who all three children had cystic fibrosis. And, you know, at the time I I didn't really fully grasp the severity of it because, you know, we were all young kids and, you know, you're doing things. You're too busy being a kid, right? But I knew that it wasn't great and that really hit home when I just before I turned 21, 
the middle child of that family who I was very close to. There was the older sister who was very good friends with, well, best friends with my sister. And then, you know, there was middle child and then um, a younger child. The middle child, she passed away um, when she was oh, very young still, very, very young. And that is when it really hit home for me. And it was something that definitely pushed me along the way to really dive in deep to science and research and things like that because, I don't know, it's that complex where you think you can change the world. And at one stage or another I thought I was going to become a geneticist, which in the end I became a biochemist and learned all about cystic fibrosis and and the research behind it. So that is kind of what has led to this interview, I had someone from public health reach out to me after that newsletter um, and um, they asked if I wanted to interview with someone who had gone through this genetic testing process and it was really, really interesting. So I have to, the caveat is that this person, we don't use their real name, they're completely anonymous and that is their wish, but she has been we we call we call her Sarah in the interview obviously that's that's a pseudonym and she talks about her conception journey the whole process around the genetic screening and lo and behold she was a carrier and then it turned out that her husband was also a carrier for the exact same disease and it's just a really really interesting insight into that process and what they went through in order to conceive um, their baby. So this is, yeah, it's I think a beautiful kind of crossroad of science and motherhood, which is essentially this podcast. So I will not... not yap on anymore i hope you like this interview it was a really beautiful discussion and i learned a lot as well about ivf and and testing and and all that kind of stuff so it's a great message you'll hear that sarah is all about the fact that information is power and that knowing is better than not knowing but yeah really really beautiful discussion all right see you on the other end hello and welcome to the podcast sarah how are you today I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, everyone would have heard from the introduction that today we are talking to you about your experience with genetic testing. Um, And it's probably a little bit different because your journey was preconception. Um, and this is probably off the back of, I recently talked about, um, on a check-in Tuesday episode about the fact that the government had recently kind of done a big overhaul with Medicare and that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Australians are now benefiting from 34 new genetic tests available to them. Now, did you want to start from the beginning? Did you want to talk to the listeners? I guess one of the things that I would be really keen to learn about is from my personal experience, I knew a family who all three children had cystic fibrosis. And so that was something that played on my mind a lot when I was thinking about having children and we kind of danced that dance with our GP and said, 
this is something on my mind. I don't have a history of it. My partner didn't have a history of it. And so the GP was kind of like, look, you can do testing if it really bothers you. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be really, really expensive. And at the time we were, I guess, thinking about, we actually opted to go with a private obstetrician and we all know that that's cha-ching, 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 you know, lots and lots of dollars. Um, and we opted not to. Now, I would love to know what, was there an inkling? Was there something from personal experience where you were like, we want to get tested before we start trying to have a baby? Definitely. Um, it's been a journey, as you described. Mm. Uh, I think it all started with, uh, in 2015, uh, my mother passed away from ovarian cancer. Mm. And the oncologist who had been treating, treating her all that time recommended that my sister and I do some genetic testing to check if we have the BRCA gene. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily, neither my sister or I have it. It was neither my mom had it. It was just bad luck, but it was mm. a genetic condition mm -hmm. for her to have ovarian cancer and she didn't pass that on to us. So I guess that was the first time when a doctor um, talked about genetic testing I, in that context. I had never heard about it before. Mm -hmm. And I never thought that the same could be done with with the future, right? right? I thought this is something we do with, with us children live, mm -hmm. uh, not something you do preconception. But I do, I, I am a high school teacher mm -hmm. and okay. I work at a school where students are spoken about that uh, mm -hmm. in year 11 and they, they, they are spoken about the, the chances of having illnesses passing on in that community, illnesses mm -hmm. like Tay-Sachs disease or cystic fibrosis. So mm -hmm. some that I had heard about before and some that were quite obscure for mm -hmm. me, I had never heard before. And so I came back home after that day at school and I spoke to my partner and we, we are one of those people who like to buy insurance right? okay. <laughs> before going on a trip. <laughs> and we are, we're cautious, I guess. Mm -hmm life experiences have led us to be this way we decided that the best thing for me based on my background was to get tested okay. uh, to see if I was a carrier for any of those genetic illnesses mm. it was quite expensive as you said I, I, I was familiar with the process because of the BRCA testing I, ha I had done before mm -hmm. but yeah I didn't know that I could be tested for 700 different wow. genetic conditions, so, okay. so a, a larger number. Yeah. Not, not all of them, but a much larger number. Mm -hmm. And so I was quite shocked with the results because I am a, a carrier for an illness called Wilson's disease. Okay. And I, I had never heard about that before. Mm. And I started reading about it and what Wilson's disease is, is when your body doesn't process copper. Okay. And apparently there's copper in very small copper amounts. Copper is very important. <laughs> uh, as a biochemist, I know that, yes. I was like, copper in our body, what? I know. Metals. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? I'm a carrier for what? <laughs> and and then uh, we decided with my partner, we sort of had, I sort of had to convince him let's make sure you are not a carrier for Wilson's as well. Mm -hmm. The chances were very low. The GP also said they were low because my partner has an ethnic um, heritage that's completely different to me. I grew up in South America and he is a Greek Australian. Right. So, but we thought, you know, we've been a bit 
unlucky in life in other things okay let's not you know it's just one test let's just do it and yeah. surprisingly enough he's a carrier only for wilson's disease as well wow yeah can yeah. can we okay so <laughs> whoa okay first of all can we go back to the testing do you mind disclosing how much the test actually cost yeah it was um about over four hundred dollars okay each. yeah yeah and i think a year passed between my test and or six months between my test and his okay and i was quite surprised how there were more companies offering the test right in at a slightly lower price yeah so it's almost like a really developing industry or area of health yeah, uh, yeah. because in that small period of time the hospital and the doctors could offer us different options for testing okay and yeah. so what did that testing involve what did that look like did you so did you go to your gp and they referred you to a like as you said a third party kind of company and what did the test look like and then i guess how long did it take for you to actually get those results um so it was a blood test that we had to do mm -hmm. and i believe the blood is sent to america okay. or other countries i mm -hmm. don't think it's processed in Australia mm -hmm. at the time. This is 2018, right? Uh, 20, yeah, 2018. So quite quite a while ago. Uh, it may have changed, and it took uh, I took like two two months. Two months to get the results. Wow. Okay. It took a while. Yeah, mm. it's something that you do and you then forget. And yeah. Then by this stage, the people that were making sure that, that the blood is sent overseas and getting the, the results mm -hmm. were the genetic counseling team in the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. Right, right. So it was through the public hospital. So okay. the GP put us, gave us a referral to that unit mm -hmm. of um, genetic counseling, mm -hmm. and they were the ones giving us all the, the results and the information. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It was very specific. Okay. Yeah. And so. Okay, so you get your results. It comes back that you're a carrier for Wilson's, um, which, you know, is probably quite a surprise for you. Well, you wouldn't know because I guess uh, as an explanation for those people playing at home, I, I always say, is that if you're recessive, if it's like a carrier, it means that it's not the dominant trait. And so you've just got this gene. And as you say, it's not going to rear its ugly head with all the symptoms unless we mix our dna with someone else who is a carrier but then again that is not in and of itself determinative that your child will actually get both of those genes mm -hmm. it's a one in four chance right it's a one in four chance we both need to pass that recessive gene at, at the same time oh. um to that fetus to then have the illness we both being carriers have mm -hmm. no symptoms or no threat of having the illness it's yeah. just a passing on but i want to say that when we find found out we told our siblings who already have kids okay because we're the younger siblings and they were they were none of their kids have the illness i believe mm -hmm. but none of them wanted to test it okay. i think they what they thought is that we were trying to find something to okay to it was it's such a rare thing that um for us my partner and i want to be informed and mm -hmm. wanted to to not take any risks but both our siblings who have kids 
without any symptoms mm. um, of the illness, don't want to test them for it. Yeah. However, it's an illness that can start to show symptoms anytime between three years of age and 40. Okay. So our nephews and nieces are between 15 and 10 yeah. uh, of years of age, um, and they haven't shown any symptoms, but also our siblings yeah, decided right. not to test them. And, and so with Wilson's, what is the prognosis? Like, is there treatment? Yeah, like, what does that look like? So the, the genetic counselling team at Prince of Wales Hospital uh, met with us to explain that because they didn't want us to just Google that Google, oh yeah. Google is your worst nightmare at this stage. Exactly. <laughs> it is, it is. And the thing with this illness is that the prognosis is so varied. Okay. So it can start at any point between ages of 3 and 40. Mm -hmm. The symptoms can change between having to go through dialysis because mm -hmm. your liver is storing too much copper or mm -hmm. it can be stored in your brain mm. or you may have issues with mobility of in some of your limbs mm -hmm. or you may just have headaches. So the, the symptoms and are so different. Mm. Um, at the hospital, they gave us the option to put us in contact with families who have children with this illness okay. to ask them questions. Uh, for us, it was enough to find out about these possible issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't pursue that, but yep. the option was provided for us. Just knowing that a, a life like this, where you never know when the illness will start, where you don't know mm -hmm. how severe it's going to be and how much medical intervention your child is going to need, was enough to, to to scare us or know that if we have a, a child with Wilson's disease, we would, during the pregnancy, probably terminate the pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. But okay. in saying that, we were quite naive and we thought, oh, it's, come on, it's not going to happen, right? It's one in four chances that it will, yeah. Yeah. that you will both pass on the gene, but it's, let's look positive, right? 75% chance that you won't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so with that genetic counselling, um, interestingly enough, I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a genetic counselor at one stage when I was at uni. And so I'm really keen to understand your experience with it. Like you've, you've touched on the fact that they explain, you know, what the, the actual disease or disorder is, and then they put you in contact with people who are currently experiencing that in everyday life. What other things, well, you know, did you get out of the genetic counseling? Was it a single session? Was it ongoing? What did it look like? I was very pleasantly surprised how much support there was like mm -hmm. you know they took us to a room in the hospital there were three different genetic counselors doing at the meeting they provided us with pamphlets they said if you forgot a question just email us at any point later on in the process to ask more questions if you change your mind and you want to pursue you know meeting with people let us know like the sensitivity that the, the sensitivity that the topic was treated with was mm -hmm. like it was a very positive experience mm -hmm. uh, I was quite surprised and I thought mm -hmm. how much funding must there be in this in this area as mm -hmm. well to have three people you know available for over an hour to talk to one family right just one couple yeah uh, pursuing this and and af after that meeting, we didn't meet face to face again. We mm -hmm. just exchanged emails. Okay. The the only time when I 
was put in contact with them again was during my first pregnancy that unfortunately ended up in miscarriage because we had to pursue IVF um, okay. because of unexplained infertility. So after a year of trying, after that meeting with them, mm -hmm. uh, knowing about Wilson's disease, we still decided to try naturally for a year. Okay. And we thought, let's just give it a go and yeah. see how it goes step by step. But so we were unlucky and we weren't falling pregnant. So we went through fertility treatment at the public hospital mm -hmm. that does not do pre-screening of embryos. Oh, okay. So they do, they do egg retrievals and they create embryos and then yep. they inserted the embryos back. I had three different embryos back, but I didn't know if they had Wilson's or not, or I didn't know if they had any genetic issue because in the public hospital, which is Medica funded, they didn't have the technology to pre-screen the embryos. Wow. Day. I did not know that. Okay. At the time, and they were saying that hopefully next year, hopefully next year, they will get that technology available. But this was in 2021. And at the okay. time, they did not have it available. Right. And so I knew that both of us having Wilson's, I would need to have an amniocentesis mm. test done at 14 weeks. Wow. So okay. by 11 weeks of pregnancy, I was so close to finishing the first trimester, I got in contact with them to start mm. to arrange for an amniocentesis, but then I had a, a loss that mm. same week so when sorry. I got in contact with them. Um, I did have a DNC done mm -hmm. and we did send it to test because I wanted to know if there was an issue and there was Turner syndrome. It was a genetic issue, which okay. was not something that we both, it, it's different. It, yeah. it was just a genetic issue itself. It's not yeah. something that we passed on, Yeah. but it, at least I knew mm. why the loss had happened. And so you continued on that IVF pathway. What did that look like for you? Well, we changed to a private clinic. Okay. I know that Medicare would have funded through the public hospital a second egg retrieval. Mm -hmm. They do, they fund two different egg retrievals, but we were advised that it, because of our history, it would mm -hmm. be better to go, move on to the private system. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. And we did a second egg retrieval. And then the embryos had to be tested for genetic okay. illnesses, but also for Wilson's disease. Yeah. Now that start, started a carrier mapping mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. because they had to create the test mm. with our genetic information, had to again, give blood mm. to then create the test to then test the embryos. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cause they've got to work out what's what. Yeah. And that took many months. Okay. That took quite a few months because I had my egg retrieval in September mm -hmm. and I could only do a transfer in December. Mm -hmm. So it took again about two months to get the embryos tested. Wow. And out of five embryos, it came yeah. back that two of them had Wilson's disease. Okay. And one of them a genetic issue. So um, only two were available to be transferred. Okay. And how did, I, I, I mean, I've spoken to IVF um, specialists and everything about, you know, the IVF journey and stuff. And one in particular here, Dr. Manuela Toledo in Tasmania, and she's amazing with facts and, and, you know, just how it all works and everything like that. 
But there is emotion that goes into this as well, right? Like what was, what did you feel in that journey? Like when those results came back and three out of five just weren't viable, what was the feeling? Many feelings. First, we would just look at each other with my partner and laugh. Okay. Because I think it was like a nervous reaction to just like, oh, come on, (laughs) come on, come on, right? But then we really struggled emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, I also started to question. I was, I started the, we started trying for a baby when I was 32 Mm -hmm. years of age. So that year of trying naturally and then the public system. And so by the time I got to this result of only two eggs being viable, I was, uh, had just, I was about to turn 35 mm-hmm. and there's so much out there in, in the media and the world about a woman being a geriatric pregnancy after 35. Mm. And so I, I blamed myself a little bit of not starting earlier. I remember when I was 30 and I went to a gynecologist for a checkup for just a papsimia. Um, she asked me if I was in a stable relationship and when I would start trying and I was 30 at the time and I came back home and I was talking to my partner, I can't believe they're pressuring me. Why are they asking me all these questions? Why well, I'm not ready? I want to do all these things. And now looking back, I understood that all those questions weren't, weren't, <laughs> they were based on previous experiences and on trying to make me be aware of time frames. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did feel a bit guilty of not starting the process earlier. Um, I did feel upset with the world mm-hmm. for having to go through that because when we first started the process of Wilson's disease, we were still very positive about it, right? We right. thought, oh, you know, 75% of chance we won't it won't happen to us. Mm-hmm. And then after trying for a year and going through the first round of IVF, you're like, well, some people just do it once and it only yeah. takes one egg and yeah. right. And by the time the news of the five embryos came, we were financially, emotionally, our cup was pretty empty, I yeah. have to say. Yeah. Um, it tested our relationship a lot. Mm-hmm. We came out of it stronger. Mm-hmm. And we just found new ways of supporting each other, mm-hmm. not blaming each other, not blaming life. Like that's the thing you're angry, but there's no one to blame yeah, for what's right. happening. But we, we focus our energy on those two embryos that mm-hmm. were viable. Mm-hmm. And we knew that out of those two embryos, one was a carrier for Wilson yeah. and one of them did not have any, any Wilson any, at all. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> not a scratch of Wilson's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we focused on that. Um, yeah. Did you get to but, choose which one that you were going to We implant? did and looking back, our life could look very differently had, had we chose a different order, we could have a whole different baby in our arms. So we chose the one that did not have any Wilsons because okay. our doctor suggested go with the best option. Yeah. But I'm going to say that going through IVF, um, mm-hmm. I, I had pre-existing issues, issues with my back, but the IVF hormones made my back a lot worse. So the week before doing the transfer, I injured my back oh, and I okay. was in a lot of pain. So we really had to think which 
embryo we were transferring because I wasn't at my best. Mm -hmm. uh, but my, our doctor still suggested to transfer the one that didn't have any Wilson mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that transfer failed. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So we had one, one left. One left. <laughs> one left. And how yeah. did that work out for you? He's my almost one-year-old son. Oh, that is, oh, it's like you just, it's like going to the casino and going, I'm all in on red, you know, like we're all in on this. Let's just do it. Yeah. Ah, oh, and Sarah, I, run, I know, absolutely. I know as a scientist that it is all genetic. Like, you know, we, we've spoken about the fact that you know, there's carriers and this embryo has got Wilson's and all the rest of it. But I also would love to know when you're going through that IVF journey in your pregnancy and, and things like that, were there any other, I guess, things that you changed about your lifestyle, about the support that you sought out, about how you looked after yourself? You know, did you kind of shift gears around self-care or like what did you... What did you and your partner do to kind of really nurture that that process? Absolutely, absolutely. It's so, it affects your life so much that you need to find ways of taking care of yourself. So the way that looked for us is we um, try to eat, eat as healthy as possible, mm -hmm. uh, but no extremes, mm. right? No, no absolute deprivation. So for example, I was still drinking coffee, but I was drinking decaf coffee. Mm -hmm. I was trying to only have one cup a day instead of two, right? That afternoon <laughs> low, <laughs> I was trying to avoid that second cup of, co of decaf coffee even, mm -hmm. right? We bought a book that gave us all advice on what um, extra um, vitamins to take in order for sperm and our egg to, our eggs to be as strong i guess yeah. as possible yeah we both saw a counselor mm -hmm. as well a psychologist uh to to help us go through all the ups and downs of the process did we you do that also, individually or together or both individually okay individually uh we had seen uh, a couples counselor before mm. uh but it was it wasn't it was more related to starting our journey okay. of trying to yeah. conceive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always thought it was going to happen very quickly. <laughs> I know. I always find it fascinating because I think, um, you know, we, we sit here and we talk about, you know, physical health and things like that. But I think when some people and, you know, unfortunately, mental health just doesn't get the airplay that it should. And I know it makes people nervous. And I think that's why I'm so vocal about it. And the fact that, you know, I've been seeing a psychologist for, gosh, I don't know, like 12, 13 years or something like that because it's so normal. And it's like if you are going on a really strenuous emotional journey, you want someone to support you as you would if you were about to run a New York City marathon. You'd get a coach, right? Like Absolutely. you just don't do that Absolutely. stuff by yourself. Absolutely. What, yeah. Are you able to – are you comfortable to talk about certain things that you – spoke about on that journey with your psychologist like were there things that like you know that were brought up that you were kind of unexpected or yeah I, I think that it's very important to talk to family and friends but mm. there's certain topics or you know certain yeah themes that are so repetitive right and mm. and, and 
difficult and multi-layered that a professional, the guidance of a psychologist is super important and I think IVF is one of those. I was very lucky to find a very good psychologist like we fit and actually she had gone through IVF herself so I felt like she knew exactly what I was going through. Yeah. We spoke about trying to be okay if we can't conceive and what my life would look like if we can't have children. Okay. Uh, those are things we discussed. We discussed what, yeah, exactly, our partnership, our life would look like, my life would look like, if I could find purpose and meaning in other avenues in life. Also, I was struggling because I was 35, I'm, I'm 36 now, um, lots of people around me were having children, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to be supportive for your friends, but you're, you're hurting as well. And it's, it's very hard to find the balance. Yeah. So she was helping me navigate some of those baby showers and uh, you know first communion or birthdays mm. to to know when maybe I couldn't attend those and yeah. I, I had to take care of myself if I was going through a cycle or had received bad news but at the same time wanting to be a supportive friend so trying to giving me advice on how to navigate those difficult moments oh that I, that actually hits me real deep because when my husband and I were debating over having a second child, he was a hard no. And I was, I was at one stage, I was a hard yes. And I remember like just going to parks, kids parks and seeing siblings or seeing how my daughter would interact with other kids. And it broke my heart. Like I was just like, oh man, I don't know how. I don't know how we can't have a second child, but yeah, we spoke about it with um, our psychologist, very similar to you. And it was kind of like, what is your life going to look like if that second child is not in it? Like, how are we going to manage that? And it's such a, such a hard one to wrap your head around. What, what I was struggling was the lack of control in the oh, decision yeah. because it was nothing we could do or not do. I mean, we could decide to stop IVF or mm -hmm. to keep trying, but the lack of control I felt during the time. And I think it hit me extra hard because I was brought up as a feminist and my parents always said, there's nothing you can't do, live your life, do all of these things. And then when you want, if you want, have a family, mm -hmm. right? And so when, when I did want my family, I couldn't and mm. the lack, yeah, I, I was told that I could, that whenever I wanted, if I put my mind on it, it would happen. And suddenly there's nothing we were doing that would influence us having a child or not. And I really struggled with that to understand that sometimes in life you don't get what you want. And mm. it's very hard to accept that. Oh God, that breaks my heart. <laughs> that just is so... Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I was told that as well. You can have anything you want as long as you work hard enough, be kind to others and, you know, it will all come and then... But with fertility in the human I body. Know. When it they is... say unexplained infertility, you're like... I know, what those do types I do? of <laughs> phrases just don't do it justice, do they? Okay. And so you had your miracle child. 
How was your pregnancy? Tell me about that and your postpartum. What did that look like for you? Uh, we were over the moon that that last embryo did stick, but riddled with anxiety. Yeah. Right. And so because I had started bleeding at 11 weeks with my previous pregnancy that wasn't viable, uh, when I started bleeding at eight weeks, I was preparing for the worst, but luckily there was still a heartbeat. So between eight weeks and 13 weeks, I had to do bed rest because I developed a hematoma in my uterus. Yeah. yeah. Potentially uh, some of the medication I was on to support mm -hmm. the pregnancy, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. So I was taken off the medication and told to be in bed. And luckily I have a very supportive partner and a very supportive work that mm. I could take that time and I would walk to the bathroom and the kitchen and back to bed for five weeks. Wow. Without knowing if the pregnancy would continue or not. So oh, that was very goodness. hard. What did yeah. you what did you do to occupy yourself? Like I, I I automatically go how much T V and how many books did you read? But at the same time, like how did you actually switch your mind off? if at all it was very hard to go to the bathroom <laughs> it was very hard not knowing what to expect uh, i had ultrasounds all the time as well to check mm. i have a cat and the cat was very supportive <laughs> <laughs> a pet can work miracles yeah situations like that and also i'm a i'm a senior high school teacher so yeah. I'm year 12 so i was still recording lessons and communicating with my students so okay. that gave me purpose during those right. days yeah and also every day that passed i was getting longer and longer with the pregnancy like yeah. i was yeah hitting those 12 weeks mm -hmm. and trying to remain positive that this mm -hmm. was a little fighter mm -hmm. inside of me so after 13 weeks i was lucky that the bleeding stopped because mm -hmm. i know that for some women it doesn't mm -hmm. uh, and i could resume no normal life and luckily i had a very supportive IVF specialist slash obstetrician who mm. reassured me all the time. I could text him at all hours, open the clinic on a Sunday, private clinic on a Sunday to do a scan because I had been bleeding a lot. So that was, that got me through that wow. period of time. And the second trimester was amazing, glorious. And then <laughs> uh, I decided to work until pretty much last minute. I stopped work because I really had to the last five days. Yeah. Um, last five days? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So last you five days because the baby up... was going to come early. Okay. It came early okay. at 37 weeks because I was going to work okay. until. <laughs> I was like, after 40 weeks? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But um, all the scans were showing that towards the last month of pregnancy, my mm -hmm. placenta decided not be very efficient so the baby wasn't putting on weight mm -hmm. and so we were having extra scans as well every week the last month uh, to check the progress of the baby make sure he wasn't in distress mm -hmm. was getting enough nutrients to develop and he my water's broke at 37 and a half weeks so, he, so you went naturally so my water's broke okay. but i had a plant cesarean okay Okay. Yes, because of the anxiety. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm a I'm an elective cesarean <laughs> mama. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> and it was the best experience ever. It was yes! incredible. 
That's oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, no regrets. <laughs> that is so beautiful. And so you're one year on now yes. and looking back at it, like what, what could you, what could you say to, I think this is kind of part of, we do a rapid fire at the end, but I'm going to ask you now, what are the things that you would love to tell your younger self or you'd love to tell those people who are going through this right now? To my younger self, I remember I was so oblivious that asking someone if they have children, if they would have more children, mm. is, is, can cause a lot of distress to the other person. Yeah. So I would, I would tell my younger self to be a bit more careful when it mm -hmm. comes to that, to not take things for granted or the, the story behind each person yeah. and really be mindful of, of those questions if it is appropriate because you just never know what mm. you know when, when you when i go to the park and i look around and i see kids running i don't know what's what that the story behind yeah yeah so i'm much more mindful of that and to other people to yeah to not take things for granted to hopefully inform themselves as much as possible to be mm. supportive of friends or relatives going through the process mm. for me information is power right that's what my partner and i think and so that's why we always wanted to know <laughs> and that's why we did the testing and so on and we paid very high a lot of money for yeah. genetic testing of the embryos as well oh, in the private right. clinic yeah. that's really expensive as well mm. about 700 per embryo on average <sighs> Yeah, um, so we elected all of that because information is power. And yeah, that's why I'm talking in this podcast because mm -hmm. the more we normalize miscarriage, the more we normalize IVF, and the numbers are showing that it's much, much more common as time progresses. Mm -hmm. So just, yeah, be as supportive as possible of people going through that process. Mm -hmm. If it's not talking about your own children all the time, if it's dropping off, you know, a lasagna, everything will will be helpful. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, absolutely spot on. It's something that until you're in it, until you've lived through it, it just doesn't resonate and doesn't hit home as much. Like it's something that I also am quite conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm not having a second child. And, you know, it's that time gap that's like kind of, when your first is about 18 months, two years old, the pe like, people are like, so when are you having a second? Like, it's just something that rolls off people's tongues. But it's also that acknowledgement that maybe that person doesn't want another child or can't have another child, and that's okay. Like, that's their life. So they can make and, those decisions. And the more I, I am into the process of being a mother and meet other mothers and there's more uh, sincerity around birth trauma, right? Mm. And around the, the difficulty of a first year, if there's not enough support around, the more you start to, yeah, think <laughs> not everyone will have a big tribe around them. That's okay yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to just quickly jump into our rapid fire, Sarah, but I just wanted to acknowledge, thank you so much for sharing that story. So <laughs> that is very, like, I can't even imagine that's such a full on journey as well. Like going from, oh, 
we're not sure. We'll test to holy guacamole. Like we're down to one embryo. This is it. We're all in on this one. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you so much for sharing. It's a really brave thing to do to kind of share your story. Thank you. Um, it's, it's the least I can do. I, I consume so many podcasts and IVF forums and groups. And I've been, I'm very grateful for other people sharing their stories. They, they gave me courage and support mm. and information as well, what type of questions to ask my doctor, etc. Mm. Um, so it's the least I can do. Okay, so I always ask what the top tip is, which we've already, <laughs> we've already touched on that one. My second question is, did you have like a go-to resource, whether it be a forum, a workshop, a book, what, what would you be your go-to resource for those who are kind of navigating this genetic counselling and, and preconception and IVF journey? Yeah, um, I joined the IVF Australia Facebook group. Mm-hmm. And that Facebook group, I've had to quiet it a, f- a few times, mm-hmm. um, but the amount of information it provided me with was a lot. Like, I think the questions I was asking my specialist towards the end of our journey were mm-hmm. thanks to that group, and I think that it made a difference. Also, okay. people were posting photos of their child and telling the story of how long it took them etc so it was giving hope mm-hmm. as well then we also bought the book it starts with the egg okay and although it is focused on egg quality mm-hmm. uh, it also has a section on sperm and mm-hmm. uh, advises what vitamins and lifestyle choices men should do mm-hmm. So we, we followed that. So we ordered a bunch of vitamins to, to take. And seeing a counselor, a psychologist, I know that some services offer, like for example, our the IVF clinic in the public hospital offered like a one-off type of, you know, or two, three meetings. I would encourage you to have a longer lasting relationship, finding a, a psychologist that, mm-hmm. that you know, it's not a one-off meeting that really yeah. asks questions about your family and your past because all of that influences, you know, your re- the reasons why you want to become a parent, you know, and ha- how you cope with the stress or bad news. So really having someone that you trust and you can uh, talk to regularly. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I also know yeah. it's expensive. I also yes. know it's expensive. So... I'm mindful of that, but it's money usually well spent. Our last question that we always ask, which is very off topic, but we borrowed it from Brene Brown. (laughs) So our last question is, what do you keep on your bedside table? Many, many, many books. (laughs) And and my mobile phone. (laughs) Are you reading something in particular at the moment that you can share with us? I'm part of a book club, so I read constantly, and I'm the granddaughter of a bookshop owner so Ah! (laughs) i've always been surrounded by lots of of books i love fiction okay well a book i just finished and i i think a beautiful writer she's english dolly alderton okay uh she wrote all i all i know about love and ghosts and good material and all her books are about going through your 20s and your 30s and when you settle when other people don't and continue to party and you sort of start to be in a different life stage to your friends. Okay. And I think that anyone who is like between 25 and 45 will hard relate. 
but although it's fiction, it's based a lot on her own experiences or the dating world and mm. when your friends are having children, right? All those disparities in friendship groups and how to navigate that. It's just a, a great writer. I'm going to look that one up. What was the author again? Dolly? Dolly Alderton. Alderton. Okay, I'm going to write that down because I have equally become a bit of a bookworm. I'm a Kindle girl. I've been, I've, I've been uh, taken to the dark side. I never thought I would do it because I love, uh, I, lo- I know, I, you've got books, so many books behind you. I've always been a hard, I need the hard book. I love the smell of it. But I recently went on a holiday and I took my Kindle with me because I didn't want to take a ton of books with me. I read 10 books in 12 days on my Kindle. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was epic. It was so epic. And that was only because it was a four to one ratio of adults to a child. And so I had so much time on my hands. But now I'm addicted. My husband, I think he thinks I'm going to divorce him for my Kindle. <laughs> it's, I think it's time well spent. And- it is. It's a beautiful escape as well, I find. And I yes. just feel like I'm kind of coming back into my own or like six years postpartum, my daughter six. And I finally got time to myself and I can finish a chapter and finish a book. And But oh. also how it reflects, just to give you this, this little yeah. piece of information. As I was finding out that I was a carrier for Wilson's, mm. a few months after I read a book called Flashman is in Trouble. Okay. And in one of, one of the characters goes to the hospital and she has this bright color in the iris of her eyes and they don't know what's going on with her and her skin starts to be yellow. And what's the diagnosis? She has Wilson's disease. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so the universe like, is a strange, I have never heard about beast. this before. And then suddenly it's in a book I'm reading. Isn't, Isn't it strange? Crazy? So, so crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story today. It is so enlightening. I love it from the science perspective. I love it from the motherhood perspective. And I think it's really beautiful that you're sharing this with everyone. Just to kind of, as you say, information is power. And so I'm so, so sure that so many families are gonna benefit from this. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for, for a lovely conversation. Oh, my pleasure. All right, until next week, everyone. See you. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.